0: My name's Jake. I serve as the discipleship pastor here. I'm not the lead pastor. That's Jared. He's not here this morning. So that's why I'm up here. He get second best. That's yeah, me. Be great. Now, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. We're in our Kingdom series, uh, and we're, we're looking at Matthew 23. So if you want to open your Bibles there, your phone's there, you can turn to that. Matthew 23. And this chapter... Is the culmination of an ongoing drama between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And if you remember, just a couple weeks ago, Jared talked about how he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem, in Matthew now, and he's in the temple teaching, okay? And have you ever been in a moment where things are cordial between two people? It's like people are having fun, everything's kosher, everything's good, and then the next thing you know, it's not. <laughs> It could be like a kid, maybe a child, disrespects a parent and like sends you off the handle, or maybe it's a coworker at work who takes a joke a little too far, and you're like, Steve, that's not even a joke anymore, bro. Like you're like you're cutting deep. Or maybe it's when you were a little kid and you're sitting in your living room and your mom and dad are arguing, and you're like, this is awkward. It just feels awkward. And you know what I'm trying to say here is that it, it, these things can shift really quickly. And this is exactly what happens with Jesus and the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He's been pretty calm up to this point. In chapter 23, just before this, he's being challenged by the religious leaders, by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's being challenged with questions. And it's to throw him off, it's to put him off his game so that they can rebuke him or refute him or embarrass him, pull the crowds away from him. And this is Jesus' this is final words before the religious leaders. And they're in the temple, and it feels almost like Jesus is parting shots a little bit. And Before this, like I said, he's been pretty, pretty calm, pretty guarded up until this point. And this back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders has really set the stage for what's about to happen in Matthew 23. So let me pray to open our time. So Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace, Lord. Thank you for the ways that you care for us. God, I pray that this this message would give us boldness, that your words from Scripture, literally Jesus' words from Scripture, can speak directly to our hearts. Lord, I pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, before we dive into the text, I want to point out a couple things, okay? Notice in verse 1, look at verse 1 who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, and therefore to us. He's speaking to us. And he gives them a warning about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And for the next 36 verses, that is the whole theme of this chapter. It's devoted to hypocrisy. It's devoted to calling out the religious leaders. This is a mic drop moment for Jesus. And now when you think of the theme hypocrisy... (laughs) Nobody really gets the warm and fuzzy. It's like, nobody wants to dive deep into hypocrisy. No one wants to do that. But it's a very important message, and there's a lot for us to receive. It's, it can be very transformative. Hypocrisy, at its simplest definition, is to be an actor. Literally, in the, in the old days, actors would be called hypocrites. That's what they were called. And it was, it was it actually, you can even think of this, like an old theater logo, theatrical mask. Right? One mask is like white and it's got a smiley face on it. One mask is black with a frowny face. You know what I'm talking about? The theatrical mask. They would wear these masks as actors and they would act. And they would pretend. They would pretend to, to have a belief they didn't have. They would pretend to be something that they're not or someone that they're not. They would pretend to have an opinion that they don't have. They would pretend. Pretend to have a ritual or principle or standard that they didn't actually have. They didn't actually live out. So it's important for us to understand that hypocrisy is not simply failing to fully practice beliefs, opinions, or virtues. If that were the case, we would all be hypocrites. We can strongly believe a principle or a virtue that God gives us in his word yet fall short of them because we are an imperfect and flawed people. That does not mean that we're a hypocrite. We're not perfect. That is... So we have to understand that we, we are, there are inconsistencies in everyone's life. So pop quiz. Just gotta raise your hand up and put it back down real quick. You ready? How many of you believe that any given road and any given speed limit is a law? Okay, you need to raise your hand. It's a law. <laughs> the speed limit is a law. Raise your hand, okay, good. Okay. All of you need to go back to driving school. It is a law. It's a law. How many of you have never broke the speed limit? Evan raising hand. I know that that's a lie. Okay, that's an inconsistency. Like you believe the speed limit, most of you in here. Okay, you guys didn't raise your hand, so I'm not sure. But most of you in here believe that it's a law. It's a thing that you that you want to do. It's a principle. Not everybody does it. It's an inconsistency in our life. I strive to go to the speed, I know it's dangerous if I go too fast. If I get in an accident, I could die. Here's an inconsistency in my life. Okay, I know, and I've talked to many different dads, many different moms, about parenting. I have nine years of experience. I'm by no means an expert in parenting. By no means am I an expert, but I have a, a couple years under my mouth. And what I know to be true about my son, he's five, is that if when he does something wrong, if I'm clear with the expectations, I get on his level, maybe take a knee, get on his level, talk to him, hear what he has to say, give him clear expectations, and then tell him, you know, here's the punishment. Here's X, Y, Z. This is what's going to happen. Like That's the best way to handle the situation, calmly, with, with gentleness. I've talked about that with many other parents. Do I always do that? No, I don't. Sometimes I fly off the handle. And I'm like, what the heck were you thinking, man? And I go nuts. But do I strive to live out that, those principles of parenting? 100%. Do I do them most of the time? I would say I do. But there's some inconsistencies. Now I'll tell you where I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite when my wife is driving. It's true. You can laugh. If she, she was here. She would say amen. Okay. I sit in the passenger seat, and here's a couple things. She knows I'm saying all this, by the way. Here's a couple things that she does that I'm like, what are you thinking? She likes to hug the right side of the lane when there's other cars either passing her or coming at her. I think it's because she's afraid of the cars. She doesn't really know why she does it. But she does it all the time. It drives me nuts. Okay, sometimes she breaks the law. Sorry. But she speeds, Okay, She gets too close to the car in front of us. I say something. But as soon as I get in the driver's seat, (laughs) you better not say any of that stuff, because I'm doing everything perfectly. I'm driving perfectly. I'm going to speed. I'm not doing any of those, actually. I'm, like, weaving in and out of traffic. I'm looking at Jason Linder. He's a cop. I'm like, please don't pull me over. Okay, but seriously, I'm a hypocrite in that way. Like, hypocrisy is knowing and believing something fully but not living with that reality. Jared has said this before, and I know you've heard it. Belief shapes behavior. Belief shapes behavior. What we believe is going to shape the way we live our lives. It's going to to carry through our actions. And this is important for us to see. Hypocrisy is saying one thing, but not at all believing it. It's very different. And the opposite of hypocrisy is sincerity, something genuine, something that is real that's happening. That's what we all strive. I think that's what we all desire in our life, something sincere. And you see, hypocrisy pretends that it doesn't have flaws, and that's part of the problem with the religious leaders and for us. That hypocrisy pretends that it doesn't have flaws. But sincerity, sincerity recognizes that those flaws are part of who we are and that we need need to respond to those flaws in the right way by coming to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness of all of them. You know what's interesting is Jesus, just before this chapter in Matthew 22 He's in the temple, and this all would have been in the same breath, right? 22 kind of collides with 23. He's all in the temple teaching, okay? And Jesus, just before this chapter, he addressed a question from the Sadducees, from the religious leaders, and it would have been in the same breath, like I said. And he said, the greatest and most important commandment in all of God's word is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And that's Matthew 22, verses 34 through 39. If we fulfilled that command with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind, there, there can be no, hypocr- no hypocrisy, because if you love God, if you sincerely love God, it will be seen and known in your life. And in mine. Right? The church is filled with sinners who walk in light of what God has done for them on the cross. They walk in in the forgiveness of their Savior who, who, who has shed out like grace upon us. And while the church is not filled with hypocrites, it's not empty of them either. So these words in Matthew 23 are great words for us to receive and apply, to use to examine our own hearts. And that's, that's, that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. It's about our hearts. It's a matter of what's on in the inside. That, that's what matters most to him. He says it. Matthew 22, for the greatest commandment is that you would love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. That's where it starts. Even before you start coming here on a Sunday, before you start serving, before you go into a community group, before you start doing all these these lists, these these things, it's about the heart. So jump in with me, verses 2 through 12, and I'll read it to you. Verses 2 through 12, Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they do, but not the works they do, for they preach and they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That was pretty straightforward. It's right to the point. Had some bite to it, right? Jesus begins his critique in verse 2 of the scribes and Pharisees by giving them some praise, actually. He says they sit on something called the Moses seat. You see, every synagogue, they had a seat that the teachers sat on when they taught, and it was called the Moses seat. And it was called the Moses seat because Moses is directly connected to the law, and so when they would unpack the law, they would sit on Moses' seat. And so Jesus says, when they unpack the law, listen to them, for the law is good. But <laughs> the praise and affirmation ends there pretty quick. And Jesus goes on to say some pretty blunt critiques all throughout this passage. And the first is, is they don't practice what they preach in verse 3. And Jesus says, don't follow their way of life. They don't do what they do. And what do they do? makes it really clear. <laughs> they add great burdens to others that they are not willing to share. And the second thing he points out to is that their motives are wrong. They do what they do to be seen by others. They're, they are motivated by applause and recognition. Jesus, in verse 5, mentions something called a phylactery. Kind of sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Oh, my, oh, my phylactery is flaring up. It's not. It's not a disease. It was this little tiny box containing Scripture, little tiny cute scrolls of Scripture. Here's a picture of it, kind of like the original GoPro. <laughs> right? I didn't come up with that joke. Somebody told me that this morning. I was like, I'm going to use that. <laughs> but inside that box were little, little pieces of Scripture. And so why did they wear these? This is a literal representation of the text we find in Deuteronomy 6, specifically verse 8 where we are to carry the commands of God, to bind them on our hands and on our foreheads. And Jesus is pointing out that there was a practice of making their, their phylacteries overly large or broad, like the bigger the better. So like Rabbi Joe is competing in his mind to have the biggest phylactery over Rabbi Steve. And like his phylacteries, his phylactery is huge. I, should, I need to make mine bigger to be more holy, to make my status more well-known. And in doing so, they were pointing out their piety, their importance, their, their stature, their status. And Jesus also mentions the fringes in verse 5. The fringes would dangle off the ends of their cloaks, and they reminded people to obey God's command. And these actions were simply meant to get people to look at them and think, geez, like, that guy must be devoted. I mean, look at the size of the box on his head, dude. Like that, that guy is devoted. And then look at verse 6. Jesus points out how the scribes and Pharisees, they love the best seats and places of honor and being greeted in the marketplace and having their titles like, like rabbi and father and instructor, which is interesting because Jarrett makes us call him rabbi during the week here at the office. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Don't email him that, please. Okay. He's not here this morning. So, uh, But Jesus doesn't necessarily care about the titles. He doesn't. What Jesus is getting after is thinking that your role or your position would place you above someone else around you, that it would elevate you above everybody else. And this type of thinking, left unchecked, can raise people, can raise leaders within the church to places where they undermine God and His authority. And the Pharisees were known to go to the marketplace for the purpose of being noticed, being seen. It was a very public reminder to the people of their status, of who they were. And they were showing off much like a dog show. Like They were stroking their own egos. Like They would pray long prayers in the temple. They would, they would wear these, the phylacteries and the, and the fringes in morning prayers. They, would, they wanted to show off. In verse 8, Jesus makes it clear that all of us are equal in the family of God. He says we are brothers in verse 8. Like our roles and titles may be different, but our importance and our value is not. That we have one instructor, Christ Jesus, and this is why Jesus ends this passage one through twelve with the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, why is this chapter so deep? Like, why is Jesus? Why is it so heavy? And we have to remember what's about to happen. Like Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. He is about to physically leave this earth. And he's going to pass the baton of leadership of this thing called the church that he started to the leadership of his disciples. They will have authority, and so he's teaching his disciples, saying, you need to follow my lead. Don't follow these fools. It should be noted in this next section those seven woes, what we're about to look at, he says six times, you're hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, blind fools, blind men. He calls them snakes. And Jesus says, don't follow the practice of these fools. You aren't to be served, but you are to serve to become less than. You are to advance my kingdom and not yours. Like Jesus' burden is light and his yoke Is easy. And you are not to add great burdens on people like the religious leaders do. You are to bring people to Jesus. You are to point people to Jesus. And then Jesus gets specific and gets focused. He was talking to the whole crowd. And now it's like when your mom gives you that eye across the room where you're like, oh no, don't look. She uses your middle name. Like that's what Jesus does to the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and we see the seven woes in verses 13 through 36. Now, let's define what a woe is, not to be confused with woke, okay? Let's define what a woe is. A woe is used to express great grief or distress. It's a rebuke. It was a public expression of disapproval, which is interesting because the scribes and Pharisees, they cared deeply about what the public thought of them, and it's funny that Jesus he chooses this moment, this spot, to do it, He's in the temple with all of these people. Again, this is a mic drop moment for Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read the seven woes verbatim, but follow with me as we go through each of them, okay? In the first woe, verses 13 through 14, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they are shutting off the kingdom to those who would otherwise enter it. This is what it says. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They were a stumbling block. Jesus in another teaching would say, it's better to chain a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean than to become a stumbling block to a little one. You know what a millstone is? Yeah. That's crazy. Some serious words. Like you choosing personally not to follow God is one thing, but you actively keeping people from following Jesus and discovering him more, that is quite another thing. You see, the religious leaders of the day, they had, they had influence and knowledge that normal people just didn't have. They didn't have this knowledge and this, this influence. And instead of using that influence and knowledge to open the kingdom of God wider, they were using their, their influence and knowledge to narrow it. Men were about exclusion, rather, inclusion. Right, they, they, didn't, they didn't want to include people. And it makes me, this first woe makes me ask a question, is my faith Inclusive. Am I inviting people in? On the knowledge that I have, am I inviting people in? And look at the second one. It's one verse, verse 15. And it seems like the religious leaders are extremely passionate about evangelism. And it says, for they, Jesus says, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Proselyte is just a fancy word for Convert. But he says, when you do that, you're less concerned with helping them discover God and more concerned with making them followers of them. Like it says, at the end of that verse, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. They were replicating hypocrisy, almost like they were creating many Pharisees. And Jesus is rebuking these men for creating personal disciples of themselves rather than disciples of God or disciples of Jesus. And so it makes me ask a question, this woe does. Does our faith, does my faith, point people to Jesus? Do my actions point people to Jesus? And he jumps into woe three, and this one may be the most confusing for us uh, to understand. There are many different applications for all of these verses, but the one that sticks out the most to me here is in regards to the oaths themselves. Now, Woe 3 is verses 16 through 22. This is what verse 16 says. Woe to you, blind guides. Is that thing he, he said? right? He's going to do six hypocrites, a bunch of blind guys, blind woes, blind fools, blind men. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing but... If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. In order to understand this rebuke, we we have to remember what Jesus said about oaths back in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. It essentially says, don't break your oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There should be no middle ground. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. And I believe that it is one of Jesus' main issues with taking oaths. Is that an oath is just a weak form of integrity? It's a promise. How many times I've promised to Jude this week that I would play a video game with him at the end of the day? You know how many times I've done it? Like maybe once. Maybe I'm a bad father for that. <laughs> but a weak form—it's a weak form of integrity. You say you're going to do something and, and sound righteous, but never do it. Like that—you can say that, but but never actually carry through with it. Like which is—it's pretty dangerous to be swearing. And invoking the name of God or swearing by something holy, that's a dangerous thing. And look at verse 17. It says, You blind fools, for which is greater? The gold of or the sorry, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And then in verse 19, he says, You blind men, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Like, Jesus rebukes these Pharisees, not only because they are talking about oaths, but because they are debating over what people should and shouldn't swear by. They were measuring. Jesus is saying here is that it doesn't matter what you swear by. The problem problem is that you you don't keep your promises in the first place. And this should speak to all of us who who use a lot of Christian or faith-based language but don't have a lot of action to back it up. And I ask the question to myself, is my integrity proven by my actions or simply words? And then woe four, Jesus starts by commending them for tithing. He says, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That's cool. I'm actually out of cumin at home, so if anybody wants to. But then he says, and he's sure to point out that they neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Yeah, you're tithing, but you're forgetting the main things. You're not keeping the most important things the most important things. And then verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's clear as mud. What does that even mean? Well, you have to know it would be very specific because they knew the law. The scribes and Pharisees did. You have to know that they couldn't eat either. You couldn't eat flying insects According to the dietary restrictions in the law, and you couldn't eat a camel because it was a hoofed animal. You couldn't eat either one of these things. And to ensure that you didn't eat gnats, what they, would, what they would do is strain their drinks. They would take their wine, put it through a strainer, and they would catch out the gnats that flew into their drinks. And Jesus is saying, you guys are straining gnats while you're chewing on a camel. Like, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, but you are eating a camel. And, it, like, when I read this this week, like, you, do you have anything big that you're putting off? Right now, something you sense God calling you to, but perhaps exempting yourself from by way of gnat straining? My, my, my schedule is too busy. I can't do that. Maybe you need to realign your priorities. I can't engage in that. It's going to take too much time. It's going to take away from this. It's going to take away from that. And then woes four, sorry, five and six uh, are are a clear picture of hypocrisy. This is verses 25 through 28. It breaks up into two woes, but they're saying the same thing. This is what woe five says. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup And the plate and the outside also may be clean. And then he goes on to kind of double down on this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Jesus is pointing out that they are attempting to portray something that they are not. They are presenting themselves as fine china, but on the inside, they're, they're just dirty, unusable. And isn't that what Christianity is, right, what, what all of religion is? The sin avoidance and guilt management, right? Isn't the point of it all to, to get outside, get the outside looking good? Like That's the point, right? Like, you go to church every Sunday. You tithe. You serve. You're in community group. You're in DNA group. You're doing all these things. You're growing. You're in your word every day. Christianity following Jesus is about an internal change. It is a matter of the heart. It is not an outward thing. It it, it flows into an outward thing, but it is not about the outward. It's about the heart. What's inside is what matters. And I want to come back to woe 5 in just a second, but I want to get through woe 6. Woe 6, verses 29 through 36. This is the final woe, and it's a very basic one. But it's extremely important and a great place for us to wrap up. It's where Jesus wraps up. And some might even call this the final charge. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they can't see that he's the Messiah, that he's a prophet. You see, they're taking care of the graves of the prophet of old and building tombs for the prophets and decorating the monuments. And this isn't a bad thing but they failed to recognize the prophet Jesus that was right in front of them. Listen to what it says in, in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you, bl- for you build the tombs of the Pharisees and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And then in verse 30, they make some promises that they can't keep, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, this is what they said, Jesus is quoting them. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Huh, interesting. In this final woe, in in verse 35, Jesus refers to the Old Testament martyr Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, and then Zechariah, who is the last recorded martyr in the Jewish Bible. This is in their history. And it's about to happen again. They are building tombs, to honor dead prophets, and they are claiming that they would never put to death a prophet while preparing to kill Jesus. Like, woe seven is connected to woe one, 100%. If we go forward just a couple chapters into Matthew 27, we will see the religious leaders persuading the crowds to choose another man over Jesus to send Jesus to death. They become a stumbling block. And what does he say about a stumbling block in Woe 1? It's not good. You'd be better to chain a millstone to your neck and jump in the ocean than to be a stumbling block, than to stop others from knowing God more. They're hypocrites. We need to wrap up. Jump back with me to Woe 5, specifically verse 25, I'm going to read it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Like Christianity following Jesus is about an internal change that is only realized by the way of Jesus and his grace. And an internal change that is then expressed in an outward life of worship and adoration. What is on the inside is what matters. This cup is my favorite cup. It has my favorite band name on it. I don't know if any of you know Johnny Swim. I love Johnny Swim. It's a good band. It's my favorite cup. It's nice. It can hold a, uh, a normal size French press. It can hold half of that. It holds a lot of coffee. It's a good cup. It's nice because it's nice and round, uh, like, like larger than a normal coffee. It doesn't like spill easily. It's a nice cup. It's one of my favorite cups. I've actually been missing this cup for a while, and last week, whenever I was preparing for this message, Sarah found it, okay, in the shed. I'm not sure when I took it out there, but I left some remnants in the cup. This is what the inside of this cup looks like. It's bad. I kid you, I've showed a couple people, there is a spider in here, and there's another bug. I like, guess pretty gross, okay? It's been, I don't know how long it's been out there. This is my favorite mug. It needs to be cleaned by its owner. And that's what Christianity is. It's, it's about the heart. It is faith, faith that is prompted by a love for the one who changed you on the inside, Jesus. Faith isn't about do's and don'ts, about, but about a life lived in joy because of what Jesus was about to do and what he's done. That's faith. And Christianity... They aren't, Christians aren't fancy cups and plates. Christians are jars of clay being used by the Father. And inside, get this, on the inside, they carry the most precious of treasures, the gospel. Each and every one of us in this room are the church. We make up the church. We, we, Us, we are the primary agent of change that God is going to use to advance his kingdom, us. And it starts with our hearts. And this is, Jesus is reiterating everything he has taught up to this point. And this is the reason this speech is so lengthy and deep. Because it's important. He's about to leave. He's about to gone physically. Physically. We could spend a lot of time in this chapter unpacking all of the parallels and the the different references that Jesus does in his own teachings and with the Old Testament. It's incredible. Here's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. It's not what goes into the body that defiles a person. It's what comes from his heart that defiles him. I want you to hear this next line. It's not about the outside of the cup looking clean. It's about the inside being clean. It's not about the outside looking clean, all shiny, nice. It's about the inside being clean. I'd rather drink from a Dixie cup than to drink from this cup right now. I'd rather have to go back 20 or 30 times to get the amount of liquid that I want than to drink out of this cup. It's not about the outside of the cup looking clean. It's about the inside being clean. And the difference in hypocrisy and inconsistency is the heart. Both positions fall short of God's standard. But in inconsistency, we are self-aware of our shortcomings and our sins. And, And in that humble state, Jesus is ready and available to help us and transform us even in our inconsistencies. And hypocrisy, however, hypocrisy denies the free gift of grace because hypocrisy doesn't say, doesn't see the need for grace and mercy. And this is the point Jesus is trying to make to the crowds and to the scribes and the Pharisees and to his disciples, including us, is that we need grace, and it starts with our hearts. This cup needs to be cleaned by its owner. So what is preventing you from allowing Jesus to invade your heart and to make you more like him? To start to change you? Transform you? What's getting in the way? Is it busyness? Is it relationships? Is it money? What is it? This passage of scripture It beckons us to examine our hearts. And this isn't just something you do once. We are flawed people saved by grace. Striving to be more like him day by day, you will go through life and you will be tempted. New sin and old sin will present itself and we need to examine our hearts regularly. Discipleship is a lifelong journey. I'll have you guys stand with me as we continue to worship together and before we dive into some song just take a second here in this moment to examine your heart let me bow your head and close your eyes examine your heart for a second what what is getting in the way of you becoming more like Jesus what's preventing you from saying yes to him Well, Father, we thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for the ways that you're working and moving in our life. And Lord, we pray that you, you would boldly invade our hearts, convict us, Lord, of the things that we're holding on to, the things that we're exempting ourselves from, much like the Pharisees when they strained out the gnats. Lord, what are we exempting ourselves from? God, I pray that we would submit to you this week this message wouldn't just be fleeting as we walk out the door, Lord, that your words in Matthew 23 would strike us in a way that examines our hearts for inconsistencies, for hypocrisy. Lord, how are we being prevented? Like, what, what are we doing that's preventing us from diving deeper with you Lord, invade our hearts. I pray all this in your name. Amen.